Welcome to the Radical Parenting Podcast. My name is Tony Shawcross. Hey, I'm Kara Porba. We're joined today by a friend and, and colleague and someone both Kara and I have admired for a, a long time. Her name is Susan Campbell. Dr. Campbell, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Susan's done a lot of work that relates to the radical on- honesty kind of uh, sphere. Um, and uh, she has a, her most recent book, From Trigger to Tranquil, How Self-Compassion and Mindful Presence Can Transform Relationship Conflicts and Heal Childhood Wounds. Uh, is what we're here to talk about today. It's not primarily about about parenting, although there is one chapter kind of dedicated to your relationships when you're triggered in in relationship with your child. Um, but uh, certainly very very useful for for parenting and and uh, and for everyone. So thanks for thanks for sharing the book with us, Susan, and thanks for joining us to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for writing this book, Susan. I really found it lovely, and I did not know six years ago when my daughter was born that parenthood I thought parenthood was going to be really hard in like time consuming and emotional kinds of ways or you know physical kinds of ways as far as babies and everything I did not know how infuriated I would feel and how triggered I would get with this sweet little person that I love more than anything in the world and so for me, this is my journey in parenthood of like, what's going on in me and what's going on in my, you know, childhood history that is um, getting triggered, you know, when my kid is just being a kid and doing what she's supposed to do, which is being a child. And um, I, so I, I, I love the way that you, you know, say so much about bringing presence and compassion and awareness to all that's going on when we get triggered. I want to just jump in to all the parents and actually everyone in the world that deals with other people. We can't always control how people behave in relation to, to us, right? And that's one of the most painful things when you're a parent, because you are trying you first of all you're you're trying to impart something like self-esteem or you want you want the the kid to eat healthy food or whatever you're trying to do there they've got a mind of their own and so you're going to run up against not getting your own way and, you know even parents want to get our own way and so we can feel ineffectual and uh, like a failure sometimes as parents when we don't. And the book is about how to deal with the emotional pain of things not going our way. And I don't mean to minimize uh, the need to have things go our way because some of those are real valid needs. Now with kids, one of the real feelings that come up, forget about validity or not, if it's a feeling, it's there to be dealt with, is frustration. And the the, the whole point of the, the book is, it, especially for parents, is if you learn how to handle your own emotional pain in a more self-compassionate, self-responsible way, you will not be as 
affected by your kids, we'll call it frustrating behavior. You won't project onto the kid, you know, you're causing me pain, you better stop that. Not that you would think that consciously, but almost all of us go through the world kind of resenting or avoiding somebody who causes us emotional pain. And it's up to us as adults to learn how to manage our own emotional pain and to be compassionate and know how to heal it. So that's really what the book's about. Great. Yeah. And you mentioned we can't we can't control how other people behave in relation to us. And uh, we also, to some extent, can't control how we respond to that, at least internally. We can we can control maybe to some extent how we choose to respond once we've noticed these things. But so many of us are just on autopilot. You know, we have a physical reaction. We learn some way of fight, flight, freeze, whatever fun as we were young. And we are just, we are just pre-programmed. And to, to some extent, some people don't have, have control over how they respond. And none of us have control over like how our body reacts at least. Hopefully, and that what this book is about is giving us some control over the decisions we make once we recognize uh, how our bodies and minds react habitually to to these frustrations or, or these other uh, issues. So yeah, there's first first we want to admit that we sometimes are out of control of our own reactions. I sometimes say a trigger reactions like a runaway freight train. Plus, it's absolutely normal to have trigger reactions, because we know from brain science that there's this part in every human's brain, no matter what culture you're from, you've got this part that's, we call it in brain science, the survival alarm system. And it's like radar, it's always scanning for some kind of danger. Now in primitive times, it was physical danger, like a predator. Well, we don't have that kind of physical danger now, but we have a feeling of disconnection from somebody that's very important to us. And so that's the thing now that often triggers us. Like, they're not listening to me. If I'm a parent, it might be something like that. Or I just don't understand why they're doing that. So that feeling of disconnect can create this trigger reaction. But like you alluded to, Tony, once we know and accept this and are a, a little bit more like, okay, this is part of the human condition, but it's not like a life sentence that I have to just get triggered at the drop of a hat from not getting my own way, that type of thing. We can learn the early warning signs of what's my trigger reaction. Is it more of a fight, flight, freeze, fawn, fold? There's different things to look out for, to notice when you're starting to get triggered. And you can learn to do this when you're not triggered so that once you are triggered, you have a little more conscious control and you can actually say, whoa, I'm starting to get triggered. I need to pause. You mentioned in the book that we, that, you know, we all, and you just said right now, we all have this. Um, and most of us also have some real shame about it. Like, I don't like the part of myself that gets reactive and stops using my rational centers in my brain and just, and, and gets sometimes mean, I just don't make good decisions. You know, like I, I don't make compassionate decisions. I, I don't, I don't act in alignment with the decisions I've made about what I want my life to be about when I'm triggered. And so I'm pretty ashamed of it. And, uh, 
when I, when I do it and I try and hide it. <laughs> and I think a big part of this book is, is just noticing that that shame and that hiding and that avoidance is what makes it, makes the, the triggers perpetuate and be even more common. And, and I think the first step you gave five steps, the book gives five steps towards moving from triggered to tranquil. And uh, I think the first one is admitting and accepting your, you call it in, your insecurities. So not just your triggers, but your insecurities. Yeah. Let's talk about that one first. That one, that one is actually the hardest to get past. That's the hardest, let's call them developmental tasks on your way from triggered to tranquil. Like you said, so many people just have this shame if I, if I lose it, if I lose control of myself. And so the, the willingness to really go, I'm human. This is what happens to humans sometimes. Uh, the more shame I feel, the more I'm going to want to blame somebody else or make excuses and I think we know that's not going to be helpful. So cradling my shame with kind of a compassion, like it's almost like hugging yourself when you notice that, wow, I feel like I'm some kind of a lesser human if I uh, lose it. I just use that phrase because that's pretty common. Um, so the first step is realizing we all have these trigger sensitivities some of us don't blow up or slam doors. And so we, if we're the kind that do have big reactions when we're triggered, we can feel even more shame than the people who have the kind of hidden reactions like shutting down or deer in the headlights or just getting real logical and trying to talk somebody out of how they're feeling. That's also a trigger reaction. But those of us who have bigger, more noticeable reactions, I want, I want you to know that those, those people who are quieter about their reactions, don't, don't compare yourself unfavorably to those people. And often you, you pair up if you're like in a marriage type relationship, you'll pair up with like your opposite type. Some, somebody who has big trigger reactions will pair up with somebody who tends to shut down because there's a lot of learning in that kind of pairing. But also, if you're, if you're the more vocal one, you might compare yourself. And I, want, I, I just want you to know, triggering is pretty universal because no one got all their childhood needs completely met. And it doesn't mean if you're triggered or if you say you had childhood trauma, it doesn't mean that your parents were horrible people. It's not about that. It's about it's just impossible for a parent to meet all the child's needs. They're going to have some inner work to do later on. Especially if they don't watch this podcast in general, <laughs> especially. Well, I wonder if we should go through all have, five of the steps. I have a follow-up yeah. on that. Go ahead, Kara. Yeah, so on this, on this topic about shame, I have a question for you, Susan, that is, for me, like a real paradox that I wrangle with often um, through you know our work in radical honesty. We do a lot of this kind of work with other people, right? In groups or in pairs or whatever, you know, where we are being honest about our triggers or our feelings and being with our um, sensations and 
stories and all of that. And, and I, it sounds like you're recommending mostly doing this work on your own so that it doesn't end up triggering other people or people get co-triggered together and, and then damaging the relationship and stuff like that. And so my, my question is, I'm really trying to sort this out of like, one of the main things I want to offer my child is, um, you know, the opportunity to not feel ashamed of emotions or feelings or that like everyone gets upset, everyone gets sad, everyone has all these uncomfortable emotions. And a lot of children are taught that that's not okay and that you need to go be by yourself when that's happening and then come back when you're calm. And that I don't wanna be around you when you're having big feelings. So of course, we're not asking our children to go off and self-regulate. That's not, I know that's not what you're recommending. And so, for me, I'm like, when I do that for myself, when I say pause, I need to take a break and I go off and I self-regulate and then I come back. I might do, do you understand where, what I'm getting at? I may not be saying this very well, but what I'm, I'm trying to feel like, what's the difference between going away and, but without shame that like these feelings are not okay to have around other people. I have to do this by myself. Yeah. Um, I think I, I, I think I understand or I'm, I'm making up a really interesting question from what you just said. And what I'm getting at is what I'm, what I'm thinking is we don't want to teach our kids to be afraid of their big emotions. So what's all the emphasis on going inward. And so I, I make a distinction between when you're, when you're, going to teach a kid about handling big emotions there's a couple of couple of different important parent strategies and and one of them is straight from radical honesty although it's 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 a clearing practice you know we can um teach our kids okay we're mad let's have a structured clearing because i do not believe in people just you know um reacting from the trigger because from the trigger there's a fear story there's a fear underneath the every trigger that's like i'm being criticized i'm being put down i'm being judged i'm not enough i'm not loved and i don't i don't want people to be fighting from that fear place um but if if that's coming out and we need to just in a structured, safe way, teach a child how to discharge that, we can, we can have like, um, well, like I, I was watching TV the other night and they had these noodles. We, in the seventies, we used to have these batakas to, you know, hit something. <laughs> well, they, they were, they were beating up something with an, a swim noodle, you know, but having, having people be able to, to express, I am so mad, but it's, a, but you set it up so that it's a structure. Or you set up like a resentments and appreciation structure, so it's a practice. You can you can you can even teach kids how to do that, but you let them know we we only do that when we go into kind of like, like this conscious space. We're going to walk into this room and we're going to create you know, whether we 
put little noodles all around the room or light a candle, but you somehow have to symbolize, at least in, in my world, that this is a, a different environment where it's safe to let it all hang out. And we're both going to do it, too. And I'm going to say, you know, I am so mad at your school teacher. And, you know, you do your little, you know, your little inner child thing as a parent. Uh, and, and, but you, you can kind of create, you have to have a few ground rules, but you can, you can create a, a ritual with children just like adults, like an adult couple has a clearing the air practice. And I teach a number of different clearing the air practices um, in, in the book. But one of them is the radical honesty I, you know, I resent you for and I appreciate you for. But there's, there's quite a few different mm -hmm. ones. I'll give you another one. Uh, something you did that created distance from me. And, you know, I expressed that. And then something you did that created closeness from me. It's, it just, so that's two, a two-question clearing practice. And all what clearing practices are for those who aren't familiar with this, it's it's a way to handle feelings that have built up or that are beginning to build up, and you don't you don't want them to just be swept under the carpet. You want to move the energy so that let's say you start with anger, you usually soften once you allow the anger layer to come off because the anger layer is about protecting yourself in some way or marking a boundary or saying this is not okay with me and right underneath that once you feel you've brought a little self-support to your world you're a little safer to feel the softer feelings like oh I was so hurt when this happened so and all that is clearing now that's one that's one thing a parent can do with big emotions the other one is co-regulating the child when they're having a tantrum but being there get in their space with them possibly holding them possibly just staying with them tracking tracking them in a neuro-linguistic program it's called pacing you just kind of get into the other person's rhythm and be there with them but mm. co-regulation classically is when the person is scared bringing some safety and compassion to their world. And it, it, it's a lot like, like hugging somebody when they're upset. Now, if, if the child is flailing about and not allowing you in close, then you just stay at whatever distance feels safe to the child and just co, uh, not co-regulate isn't probably the right word, but just pace their energy so that eventually mm -hmm you come in some kind of synchronization and then they feel safe again. Because triggering and, and all this acting out behavior, it's all about the child not feeling safe. Great, thank you. Yeah, we've been studying hand-in-hand -hand parenting and a number of other approaches that are real big on staying with the child through their discomfort and, and giving that message of like, everything you're feeling is okay and I'm right mm -hmm. here. I'm here with you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, if those who read the book will see, that's what we're trying to do with ourselves as adults. We're trying yeah. to say to that wounded child, part of yourself, when you're doing this five steps to trigger work, you're trying to say, you're not alone. I'm here with you. But the, the I that's here with you is 
the bigger awareness space that we also call the noticer. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting better at doing it with myself because I practice on my daughter all the time. I think it's supposed to happen in reverse, but either way. Either way. (laughs) And it's worth, it's worth noting that both Kara and I at times have said that some of our, this work we do and this energy we're investing into being the best parent we can be is, is not just for our kid. It's, it's ways we want to grow anyway. And I feel like what's going on in this book is kind of the same. This is, this is Mm -hmm. using a relationship and an interaction as, you know, as almost like a, a crutch to the way to, the way to, to, to honor and take care of the relationship is to honor and take care of these, these issues and wounds that you have. Uh, So it's, it's, it's almost like, yeah, doing all the self work, if you're not willing to just do it for yourself for for this relationship you're in. It's parenting as a path. Yeah. You know, I've written some things on intimate relationship as a path and then dating as a path. And yeah. now, you know, it's just this one little chapter in this book about parenting as a path. Yeah. yeah. It's like the hero's journey, all the different uh, challenges of being human. You just confront them one after another, but with the awareness that this is part of the journey and learning is is what it's about learning and developing yeah well let's hit on i have this agenda for us to have some structure to this conversation so let's hit on the five Mm -hmm. kind of topics and then we can at the end kind of also touch on uh how you talk about applying it in different situations but so we've been talking about the first one which is admitting and accepting your insecurities um, the second one, uh, which has some exercises for the reader to, to do as well, is um, learning your unique trigger signature. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about that, Susan, and maybe tell us even about your unique tr- trigger signature. Oh, good. Um, so this chapter, and this, this is learning the early warning signs of I'm starting to get triggered. So we could we could do an exercise with with people right here very briefly. I'll do I'll I'll do it kind of quick, and I'll see if I can uh, answer the the question myself here as I go through. So um, you think of a time when you were when you were triggered, then bring yourself into it. So I'm going to think of it, I'm going to remember, because I was talking to somebody about this the other day before I was getting married. We're living on a sailboat. And we're going to the church where we're going to um, uh, get married. And we're climbing up the stairs of the sailboat to you know, go on shore and go to the church. And my hands are full. I'm carrying all this stuff. And he's going up empty-handed. So I get my, I get my what about me? I'm always the workhorse. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not loved. I'm not cared about. Okay. So the story, so first you think of the incident, then you think, well, what was the story that played in your mind? I'm not important. Um, what about me? And then the next thing you think of is what did the body sensation feel, feel like? Well, it was a, it was a lot of heat in the, in the middle of my body. Um, then what emotion was that? Well, that was actually anger. And, um, and then some shutdown, there was some shutdown right after that, like closing my heart down. So if you remember, like, what did you think? What did you feel? And what did you do? 
I did nothing. I said nothing. I just clammed up and you know played the role of the good bride to be and just stuffed it until much later. So okay, so that's one incident, and I do an analysis of five or ten of these when I'm not triggered, and I see is there a pattern? What do I usually do? What do I usually feel? What do I usually think? And I can get a pretty good idea then that I don't say anything. I wind up feeling sorry for myself. I carry resentment and I have the story that I'm not important. So that becomes, when I start to feel any of, of those early warning signs, then when I'm actually in a situation where I'm being triggered, I'm a, I'm a little more ready for it. I'm, I, and so then I'm ready for that next step in the book, which is to, to pause at the first sign of triggering. But the idea of knowing your unique trigger signature is actually, it gives you some power over what's usually a very automatic sequence that happens in the nervous system because you're beginning to understand, oh, this is what trigger reactions look like. And, and they have kind of a pattern to them. So that's that next, that's that next step. And, and I recommend couples, as, as, as soon as you're willing to do that, you, you share your information about that. And families can even do that too, if, as the kids get a little older. Can, can, everybody sits around and, and says, okay, here's, here's what happens when I'm triggered, what happens when you're triggered? And um, people can begin to get that kind of more psychologically sophisticated language going. Because kids, kids get hardly any help putting their feelings into words or understanding psychological concepts. This is kind of news to me that like, I get triggered plenty and I never really traced it back to like the same core fear every time. And do you think that most people have like one basic underlying fear? Or one maybe or two. One or two? Mm -hmm. Most of us have yeah, one. and that all our triggers come that can be traced back to this same pattern. Yeah, that's that's yeah, weird. and core fears are attached to the core developmental needs that every one of us have as children. And in order to grow up healthy, you need things like loving attention. You need to be reassured when you're afraid. So that's co-regulation. You need to feel protected. It's not too good if you're scared of your parent, but a lot of us are scared of our parent. You know? So when, when I talk about triggers in this book, we're, we're really also talking about developmental traumas, which are simply times that your core needs like that for attention and safety and co-regulation weren't met. That's considered a trauma. Mm -hmm. And for those who aren't practiced at doing this, the book does just give you kind of an exercise to do. And I, I, I like it because the, you know, the, the exercise, which is when you get triggered, like write down the feelings that you're having, write down the sensations that you notice in your body, the specific sensations where they are, <clears throat> write down the thought patterns that are happening. And Kara, when I did this exercise, they weren't all the same. I mean, maybe on some mm -hmm. level they did like kind of boil down, but there were two or three kind of familiar themes that, that seemed to keep coming up. And, uh, 
And just doing the exercise is building that muscle, is the practice. And it, it requires a pause. It requires, um, you know, that kind of noticer to, to, to step out where you're not just at the whim and at the, at the mercy of your reactivity. You are forcing yourself to sit in this noticer position that's saying, okay, I'm having these kind of thoughts. I'm wanting to do this or that. I'm, I'm having these body sensations. Um, so the practice um, is the, you know, is the execution also, mm-hmm. which I, I really appreciated and appreciate yeah. and want to keep, keep doing it. I mean, if all you did for me, if all you did out of this book was practice mm-hmm. this thing and never, never got any further, you'd still be getting like 90% of the value of this book, in my opinion. That doing that signature, trigger signature exercise also helps you with acceptance because after a while you realize, you know, well, that was just, that was kind of what people do when they're upset. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I learned something doing this. I just did it briefly on, I got triggered the other day with a, a coworker of mine. And I, the very first, it, because it was so fresh, I could remember that the very first thing that happened was I said something sarcastic. And so I wrote that down. And then I'm like, oh man, that is like the first thing for me. That's my first sign. It's like, as soon as I start getting sarcastic, like I know something's up. That's great. That's really a good one. Yeah. You know, one, one that a lot of people don't realize until they've read the book one of the early warning signs for many people is having a judgmental thought or a thought like, why didn't they, or why don't they, or would have been so easy for him to do it in this way that didn't trigger me. All of that means Mm -hmm. you're triggered. Yeah. I appreciate you for putting all that about the judgmental thoughts in there because that is a big one for me too. Yeah. We think it's our normal personality, but it's not your normal personality. I did not think of that as being triggered, (laughs) but I can see how, you know, there's something going on there Mm -hmm. when I want reality to be different than it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's worth noting too, that when people are new to radical honesty, uh, they often think that all radical honesty is, is admitting those judgments is saying them out loud. And yeah, I mean, it's really just for us, just the first step. And like that, yeah, you, you, I lead so many meetups and have, you know, meet so many people just new to radical honesty where they just think like, that's the point. I want to be able to just tell everybody all these judgments that come in my head. They give so much weight to them. Our work uh, is more about Mm -hmm. recognizing, yeah, that's part of my machinery but they aren't significant. They, you know, we let them out to, to, to let them go because it's holding them back that gives them significance. Well, I want to put it in a different context. I think radical honesty gets misunderstood because as I see it, and I want your opinion because you're, you're more in the community now than I am, but I, I think radical honesty is seen as a practice and it's a practice among people who understand the concepts and uh, you know, underst- understand that sh- sharing judgments is different than identifying with your judgments, that sort of thing. You know, I'm I'm revealing something. Um, so f- so for me, people misunderstand radical honesty so often because they think it's a way of life rather than a practice as a way of life. 
with willing and educated practice partners. At least that's the way I sell it to people. I don't know. I think some some practices work better than radical honesty when you're working with people that have ne- that have no exposure to it. You know, you know, like nonviolent communication isn't gonna isn't gonna you know make many situations worse, even if people have never heard of nonviolent communication. But uh, radical honesty, yeah, I, I, might be the minority opinion, but I agree that it works best when you're working with people that have some foundational understanding and buy-in with it. I, I agree with that too. Like I, my sister's not speaking to me right now because I thought we had this really great connecting conversation and I felt so close to her afterwards. And then afterwards she was like, that was way too uncomfortable and, and awful. And I never want to do that again. And she like is not talking to me. So, and I think that there's some assumptions that we have that if other people, like we have the assumption in the radical honesty community that if I'm mad at you and I say so, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. I'm just, I'm revealing my inner world by saying, I'm really mad. I'm really upset about this. And other people, we just don't have that assumption in our culture. The assumption is if you are mad at me, then that means I'm bad or wrong or that you're not going to talk to me again or we're going to lose our relationship or our connection. And so I think we do have to have somewhat like ground rules or something about, you know, um, like it doesn't work very well if we're working from different assumptions. And if people would read a little bit more in the literature on trauma and triggering, and, you know, I've, I've actually written two books now on that and mentioned it in many, many of my books, we realize how many people are walking around just waiting to be triggered when somebody's even a little bit upset with me. I'm, I'm on high alert for that, and I'm going to be triggered, and I'm going to go into the reptile part of my brain and not be able to process anything that you're telling me. I'm just, I'm, I'm all of a sudden in, in fight or flight. So it's good to remember how many wounded there are among us. Mm-hmm. Invisible wounds. Okay, so the first step was admitting and accepting our insecurities. The second is learning your unique trigger signature. Susan uh, referenced the third, which is just pausing to regulate yourself. Uh, it could be very simple, but she also gives some examples of, of, of ways to pause and regulate your nervous system. Uh, do you want to go any deeper into that, or should we jump into the fourth and fifth step? Probably just go to the... Oh, I'll say one thing about the pause, because the pause includes some breathing practices. You can pick your own, or a grounding practice, such as feeling your feet on the floor, feeling your butt on the chair. But the big deal about the pausing is you're breathing to open up more space, more capacity to hold a bigger charge inside of you. You really need to be doing conscious breathing and activating the witness at least a little bit, the ability to notice and observe, okay, my breathing is shallow or or I can feel the air going in and out my nostrils. So if you start with that, you've activated your noticer and then you can really go into the fourth step is the big healing practice, healing childhood wounds. Good. And I call that compassionate self-inquiry. 
and you start with the memory of a painful incident. You don't have to define it as triggering. It just was hurtful or feel, felt lousy. And start with that memory and I start breathing and opening up space and bringing back the picture, the picture of my husband going up the stairs. I mean, it sounds like such a minor thing when I think about it now, going up the stairs, not carrying anything on our wedding day. And I, so I bring, bring back that. And I feel that young bride with all her issues, and I begin to open up space for, okay, what else did she feel? And so you start to let in the experience of this, this recent or a long past triggering incident. So you're doing this self-inquiry either right after a pause when you got into it with your, with your mate. So, you know, you were like arguing and then you paused or it can be a day later or a month later when you get to this, but you start with that, bringing back that feeling and that sensation and that story, I'm not important. And as you sit with that and let the feelings move, you're just witnessing and being with, you started with something painful. So you begin to activate kind of, oh, this this is a hurting part of me that deserves love. So I, I suggest actually to people that you see this hurting part of you as a much-loved child and you just attend to that. If, if this was really your child, you wouldn't tell it to get over it or stop crying. You, you would want to comfort this child. So we use that kind of good mother suggestion as the template for doing self-compassion work. And when, when I guide people, some people can guide themselves and it's all scripted in the book, but when I guide people, uh, often a childhood memory will come up. It's not necessary for your healing for a specific memory to come up, but it often does. Like, oh, all of a sudden I'm remembering how I felt standing. I was, I'm like, Five years old, my father was supposed to pick me up after school, and he forgot, and I'm just standing out there by myself, and it's starting to get dark. You know, and, and then a person will remember that and feel, feel sorrow. So people have to get over the idea that you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself. This is more like feeling sorrow with that little person and for that little person. And somehow through that, you expand your capacity to handle emotional pain because you're dipping into the pain with self-support. And that's the key to healing. And I, th I think we all have a big reparenting job to do for ourselves and, uh, and, and for each other. So mm. that's the compassionate self-inquiry piece. And that's step four. That's step four. And then the last step, Kara, anything you want to say about step four? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling a little emotional right now because I, you know, that's so, that's what I want to give my child, you know, the first time around. And I know that I won't do it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, just how you described that just now, Susan, about dipping your toe into the pain with support, mm -hmm. you know, and so 
that's what we want to do for our kids so they don't have to reparent themselves later and we're offering them that support right now and i guess that's just why i feel so pat like devoted to this whole parenting thing is because it's like can we can we just as brad blanton likes to say you know can we bring up our children without hurting them quite so much in the first place yeah you know? yeah so if if a parent is uncomfortable with their own emotional pain they'll have a harder time tolerating very much pain from the kid i i um, try to remind people that a lot of us are ashamed of our emotional pain because we grew up in environments where maybe maybe the parent could hold us and comfort us for like a little while when we were scared or inconsolable or upset. But, you know, the parent has a, often a very narrow bandwidth for the pain. And so they eventually get anxious or uncomfortable and they want the child to get over it and hurt, you know, hurry up and now are you fine? Or, you know, or even a, a less a less healthy parent will just, will just stick a pacifier in the kid's mouth or tell the, tell the kid, oh, don't pay attention to what those kids at school said to you, you know, instead of holding space, because that's what children need to feel comfortable with their emotions is somebody who can really be there as long as, as, long as you need it as a child. Yeah. And, uh, but we can grow like Kara you said we can grow that muscle through being a parent as well but the the safest way you know, maybe is to grow that muscle while while um, working on yourself and then you're really prepared to bring that to your child great well so the the final step was repairing and clearing the air Susan what do you want to say about about that step now, in an intimate relationship, there would be an agreement that we would pause, we would do some self-inquiry, and then we would come back and talk about it, like making up after a fight. In an intimate relationship, you would have it all by agreement, so you'd know that we're not just going to pause and sweep it under the carpet and never talk about it again. With other relationships... It may not be quite so easy to get that kind of an agreement, and and I'll, I'll talk about it with parents and children in a minute, because with with friends or coworkers or parents and children, you you don't do as let's say as extensive a repair. But here's what repair looks like: it's a script. You've already looked at what your behaviors were when you were triggered, what came up in terms of childhood fears and old wounds so you've you know you've sort of already done that inner work before you fill out your repair script and so it says when i did da 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 oh when i had that blaming thought sometimes it's it's a it's an inner thing that you're just confessing like i had a blaming thought or when i walked out on you and and said this you know this is too much so you fill that in i was triggered it was probably so let's say i walked out and said this is too much that's the example that was probably my old fear of being blamed coming up 
or my old fear of being bad or wrong coming up. And I, I do some work in, in the trigger signature chapter on helping people name what the core fear is and the core need that they thought was being uh, violated. So you have plenty of information for filling out your repair statement. So you, And then you might say, I'm sorry I reacted that way. I can see how that would have upset you. And by the way, both people are going to take a turn reading their repair statements to each other. And then you might, there's an optional phrase, and couples can use this to develop deeper intimacy with each other. It's, when I saw you with that look in your face, it brought back memories of when my parents used to fight and I was terrified. You may or may not add that childhood reference in. And then the final thing is, and I need your help to feel that I'm not being blamed or I need your help to feel that I am good enough. And that's the end of the repair. It's all about yourself. And it's just rep reporting and being uh, transparent. And it's in a way, again, teaching you how to accept that this this happened. I don't have to make excuses. I don't have to blame you. I have this sensitivity and I'm still okay. I'm still a, a worthy person. So it affirms that when you do these trigger repairs publicly. But not all relationships are a good candidate for using that repair. So sometimes you might simply, let's say you got triggered in a group. There's two chapters on uh, what to do if you're triggered in a group or you're a leader and somebody gets triggered in a group. So you might get triggered in a group and then, then the next um, group meeting, let's say, you want to come back and repair. So you say, when, when, I, said, you know, when I said that thing about Tony's nose, I was triggered, it was probably... Um, no, no, you don't go... You, know, you, you, you don't actually... Um, go too too much into it. You know, when I said that thing about Tony's nose, I was I was triggered. If I had it to do over again, I would have said, I'm afraid Tony doesn't like me. Or what you know, whatever you were able to reveal about fears. So it's like maybe two sentences in a group that doesn't already have a repair agreement. And with children with children you would you would keep it kind of simple too, like I'm, you know, I'm sorry I, I yelled, and then you would really say I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry I yelled at you, I was triggered. If I had it to do over, I would have told you. And you don't, you don't refer to your old fears or anything. You just say if I had it to do over, I would have told you that I was, you know, I was scared you were going to hurt yourself. So, different scripts are useful for different types of relationships. Great. Um, yeah, and I, with all of this, I, I just appreciate, and you know, when you get triggered, it is different parts of your brain kind of taking over. And, and you know, your whole brain is still there. Your whole brain is still active, but we talk about like amygdala hijacks and stuff like that because mm -hmm. we know that I mean, brain science has shown that 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 those fear center parts of your brain 
those things that deal with threats and perceived threats, real or imagined, have some kind of primacy over the the more rational, the parts of your brain where you do have compassion, where you do have rational thought, where you do have forward thinking, like, I want to invest in this relationship in this way. They take a back seat, those parts of your brain. And, uh, and so, yeah, these exercises in From Trigger to Tranquil are a lot about just acknowledging this part of my brain is here. We aren't going to get a reverse lobot- lobotomy and, and uh, you know, get rid of those parts of our brain. But we need to, like, pause and we need to do what it takes to to bring this frontal part back. I was reminded. And if you understand, if you understand the triggering process, you are less likely to have your amygdala get hijacked by bad actors who are doing that kind of manipulation put down as a, let's call it as a negotiation tool or as a power tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been in relationships in my life where my, my partner's reactivity was just like a kind of like a perfect storm with mine where it would just kind of like, you know, it would just be amygdalas and hypothalamuses and pituitaries and adrenal glands communicating back and forth, not, not the rest Mm -hmm. of our brains. And, um, yeah, so that, that, this pause and this exercise, uh, would have been really good. And in many of those too, we, we know that like on some level without any brain understanding, I never had any understanding of trauma brain. I never had any Mm -hmm. studies of any of that. My brain just knew, like, we need to just, like, pause and, like, lay down together for a little bit That's or great. something. Yes. Um, uh, but, yeah, the more that I've learned about polyvagal theory and reading books like yours, the more that I've, yeah, realized, you know, wh- why that why that is necessary and what's actually going on in our heads. So. Yeah, and with couples, you can learn what helps to calm your partner's nervous system. You mentioned lying down together. And for some people, a soothing touch, if if you're not too triggered to hold enough space for them, a soothing touch or just getting out of your mind stories and into your body together can be a wonderful practice. Yeah. Kara, what closing thoughts do you have for us? We've got about five minutes left. Yeah. Well, I have I have a another quandary. Um, I wonder, Susan, if you could talk about like, do you differentiate between um, just plain old everyday emotions and expressing those in a congruent way um, versus like being actually triggered, like frontal lobe is offline and working? Mm-hmm. So because for me, I just, you can tell I prop maybe that I have like, I must have a chip on my shoulder about this on some level. There's, there's some judgment, I feel like, in our culture that being calm is better than being emotional. And I like being calm, too. I love being calm. And we're just, we have, there's so much else going on. So for me, as a person who likes to retreat and hide and run away, my work, you know, in radical honesty has been to, like, express and come forth and stand up for myself and, and stuff like that. And, um, so for me, it's this balance beam act of like, when am I expressing myself congruently in an emotional way, you know, cause we don't want to just 
like you talk about in the book, just talk about our feelings in this logical, rational way. We want to actually feel them and talk about them and share them and experience them and going off into like a reactive shitstorm and, you know, be, be blaming or shaming or whatever's going on with our reactivity. And you kind of answered this earlier, Susan, when you said like, it's about having, being conscious and having like a structure or some ground rules or something like that. But yeah, so I, I might be just asking the same question again, but what do you think? That's oh, a good, it's a good question. I want to pick up on one little piece of what you said and then answer the question. Um, the first part of what you were saying suggests that a lot of us were shaped and almost shamed into being quiet, good little people. And so a lot of us who have begun to do some work on himself have a little bit of a rebellious uh, part of us that's finally coming out and saying, no, you're not going to squash my feelings. So that could be um, integrated or not integrated, that rebel part. What helps us find integration and an integrated response to anything is, is activating that witness. And so when I, when I say calm and breathe, I mean open up a bigger space of awareness so that you can actually see, how's the other person responding to me? Are, are they there for it or are they glazing over? You know, if I'm expressing you know, real heartfelt anger or hurt about something somebody did, but I'm not in touch with my audience, then that's not that's not going to be too effective that's that's not going to serve me so calm in in this world in the in in the tranquil that i'm talking about in from trigger to tranquil has a a bigger awareness that has you being really present and really already feeling empowered so it's not like i'm i'm yelling and screaming from from this little infantile place, you know, you got to hear me, you're, you're expressing with the awareness that it might not be well received. And you're, and you're going to take that into, and you're going to be able to stay engaged. And that's the difference between an integrated expression of emotion and just flailing about but look, let's forgive ourselves because sometimes you have, as radical honesty says, sometimes you have to make a mess and then clean it up. <laughs> and I, I really remember we're going to make messes. That's why I have this whole chapter on repair because sometimes just to get to the bottom of something, you got to flail about for a while and, and have that be like an okay part of your world too. Yeah, Kara and Susan and I, as a closing thought, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. We were at a, a retreat together once where we tried to kind of come up with some of the, the stone tablets or something of radical honesty. And um, through continued evolution and then my own kind of tweaking of it, when I have a meetup around radical honesty, I, I say that radical honesty is about three things. The first thing for me is about relieving the stress that comes from from withholding and penting up these emotions and, and pr pretending we don't have them hiding. Um, the second is learning how to better connect and interact with, with people um, in a more intimate and an authentic way. 
this book is definitely about those two things. But I think it's also really about the third thing that I say uh, radical honesty about, and Brad does too, which is shifting from being a reactive product of past experiences, an autopilot reactive machine in our life, into being a conscious creator of ourselves and of our life, where we aren't just automatically triggered and reacting in the way we were programmed to, but we're we're moving past that. And so this book to me really embodies all three of those those goals uh, that I've committed a lot of my life to, and especially that third one. So thank you, Susan, for writing it. Thank you for giving people just real kind of concrete um, tools for shifting from being that reactive product of past experiences into being a conscious, deliberate creator of, of our life. Great to be with you guys. Thank you, Susan. All right. Uh, you're listening to the Radical Parenting Podcast. Uh, you can watch us at RadicalHonesty.com, uh, anywhere where you listen to your podcasts, also on YouTube uh, via video and on FM radio in Denver, Denver Open Media, 92.9, 89.3 HD3. Thank you for joining us, Susan. You've been listening to Susan Campbell, PhD, talking about her new book, From Triggered to Tranquil. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.